Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 29, Numbers chapters 25 and 26. Well, as we leave behind now our study of uh, Balak and uh, Balaam and move on into further into Numbers with, with, with yet another of the many rebellions against Yehovah and the resultant divine retributions, one would think that after nearly 40 years of living in the wilderness with the wilderness tabernacle always in their view, an operating priesthood, an unbendable seventh-day Shabbat, regular festivals and remembrances, and the ever-present Moses as their leader, that Israel would have conformed to all that the Lord had given them as ordinances and rules to live by. But as we're going to find out as we read Numbers chapter 25, that was certainly anything but the case. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 25. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it is page 180. Numbers chapter 25. Israel stayed at Shittim. And there the people began whoring with the women of Moab. And these women invited the people to their sacrifices of their gods, where the people ate and then bowed down to their gods. With Israel thus joined to Baal Peor, the anger of Adonai blazed up against Israel. And Adonai said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people, hang them, facing the sun before Adonai, so that the raging fury of Adonai will turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you is to put to death those in his tribe who have joined themselves to Baal Peor. Just then, in the sight of Moses and the whole community of Israel, as they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting, a man from Israel came by, bringing to his family a woman from Midian. And when Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the Cohen, saw it, he got up, from the middle of the crowd, took a spear in his hand, pursued that man from Israel right into the inner part of the tent where he thrust his spear through both of them. The man from Israel and the woman through her stomach. Thus was the plague among the people of Israel stopped. Nevertheless, 24,000 died in the plague. And Adonai said to Moses, Pincus, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the Cohen, has deflected my anger from the people of Israel, by being as zealous as I am, so that I didn't destroy them in my own zeal. Therefore say, I am giving him my covenant of shalom, making a covenant with him and his descendants after him, that the office of Cohen will be theirs forever. This is because he was zealous on behalf of his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the man from Israel who was killed, put to death with the woman from Midian, was Zimri, the son of Salu, leader of one of the clans from the tribe of Shimon. The name of the woman from Midian who was killed was Kozbi, the daughter of Tzur, and he was head of the people in one of the clans of Midian. Adonai said to Moshe, Treat the Midian as enemies. Attack them. Because they're treating you as enemies by the trickery they use to deceive you in the pure incident and in the affair of their sister Kozbi, the daughter of their leader from Midian, the woman who was killed on the day of the plague in the pure incident. 
Well, what an undulating path Israel seems to travel. From the high highs to the low lows, from the mountaintops to the valleys, back again. From holy obedience to casual irreverence. From proper worship of the Almighty to great and high-handed sins against Him. No sooner have we finished the episode of Bilam pronouncing glorious and victorious prophetic blessings over an Israel that bears no guilt in God's eyes, and then an affirmation of their unique and separate identity with the Lord from among all the nations, then here we find the Hebrews cavorting with the enemy, reveling with their gods and partying with their women. We might ask ourselves at this point, don't they ever learn? How many deaths at God's own hand must they suffer before they fully submit to his lordship? Well, on the one hand, we see the infamous description of the Hebrews as being a stiff-necked people being developed. But on the other hand, we see that it's less a matter of very short memories and more a matter of a different group of Hebrews having to learn the same lessons that had been previously taught to their elders. By now, you see, God's curse upon Israel that none of the people who came out of, out of Egypt who had attained an age of 20 by the time they left were still alive, except for Joshua and Caleb. So, while the first Exodus generation had suffered so much as a result of their rebellions, this new generation was either not yet born or had failed to absorb the lessons meted out upon their elders. Now this may also answer the oft-asked question, why does the book of Numbers and then later on Deuteronomy tend to repeat so much of what had already been given to Israel and us from the book of Exodus? The reason is really no different than how it's always been with mankind. We never seem to learn from history. Never. It is said, you know, that a wise man learns from his own mistakes. Uh, but a wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. Okay, The new generation of Israelites didn't take God seriously, and so they were about to pay a terrible price. Well, verse 1 tells us that Israel was probably still at the same encampment they were when Bilam and Balak stood on those three different hilltops, gazing at this vast horde of Hebrews, while King Balak tried to convince that Gentile sorcerer, Bilam, to curse Israel for him. This was at a place called Shittim, which literally means acacia tree. Now let's begin by understanding that it is highly unlikely that at the moment it was occurring that Israel had any idea of the shenanigans that were occurring with Bilam and Balak. Okay, that is to say, the folks of Israel had no idea at the time that it was all going on, that King Balak was working furiously to have Israel spiritually cursed. In fact, it is tradition 
that Balaam suggested as he was leaving to go back up to Mesopotamia, that as an alternative means of defeating Israel, since God wouldn't allow him to curse Israel for King Balak, that King Balak infiltrate Israel with his people and befriend them in an attempt to slowly turn Israel away from Jehovah. The immediate goal would be to get Israel to worship the gods of Moab. Because this was a culturally typical sign of alliance and respect. And sure enough, we're told that the Hebrews, the men at least, started messing around with the Moabite women. Almost for sure these were the younger and eligible men. Might also included a few of the middle-aged who felt free to cavort with women other than their wives. Further, it is said at the beginning of verse 2 that the setting for this whoring was a sacri- at a sacrifice to the gods of Moab. What's happening here is a festival to Baal, or as he was officially called during this era over in the Transjordan region, where they were right now, Chemosh. And this whoring also likely revolved around the pagan practice of religious prostitution that was common among most of the Mystery Babylon religions at this time. Chemosh, who is here called Baal Peor, better the Baal of Peor, was one of several gods involved with fertility. So, sacred sex was at the core of every celebration in honor of any fertility god or goddess. Therefore, we have two major violations of God's commandments at play. Israel was coveting other, coveting other gods than Jehovah, and they were for committing fornication, in some cases adultery, with foreign women. This could all be lumped into a single category. Idolatry. Now, I want to draw a parallel for you that I hope causes us all a little bit of discomfort. Sometimes we can get the wrong mental picture of what was happening in the Bible. And so it can be kind of hard for us to relate to what's going on at a personal level. So many of the great pivotal moments in the Bible were subtle. Not particularly noticeable at first. Yeshua's birth as one example. It's, it's kind of like that in mankind's history in general. When those first pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, it was a minor blip on the radar screen of the world. A handful of people commissioned a ship to reach the new world and start a new life there. They didn't come to claim it for another nation. That would have been noticed. Insignificant. They just came to escape religious persecution, primarily by the institutional church in Europe. Thus, here in Moab, the actions of the people of Israel in interacting with the Moabites would have at first seemed welcome, natural. I mean, it would have seemed peaceful, respectful, neighborly on both sides. Moab wasn't the home of savages who sought to do terrible things to anybody that came near them. 
Okay? They were just pretty much regular folks. For the young men of Israel to go spy some pretty girls from another indifferent and probably very appealing culture was something to be humanly expected. Moab worshipped various gods, including Baal as the chief god. It wasn't Israel's calling to convert foreigners as they journeyed towards the promised land and they sure felt no obligation to attempt it. So, people being people, Israel showed some respect for the Moabites' beliefs, even if they didn't agree with it. How else were they going to be able to get along with them in a civil manner? Yet never in the Holy Scriptures are God's followers ever taught to show respect to the false gods of other cultures. Not even as a means to peaceful coexistence. And the reason why is demonstrated right here in the first two verses of Numbers 25. Invariably, that kind of respect and tolerance of pagan ways and their gods turns into the adopting of some of those ways. And the watering down or even the perversion of the ways of God Almighty. God calls what they were doing whoring. Because for him, idolatry practiced by his own set-apart people is unfaithfulness. Whoring doesn't necessarily mean in this case that the Israelite men were going after Moabite prostitutes, although some probably did. Rather, it means that by having a closer and closer relationship with a foreign people whose culture was all about honoring other gods the men of Israel were automatically being unfaithful to the God of Israel. Let me fast forward now, get you a little uncomfortable, to the 21st century. You know, no group of people as a whole, more than Christians and Jews, are seeking to find a way to forge a peaceful relationship with an enormous group of people who openly worship a false god. Over and over, Christian and Jewish leaders and political leaders who claim Christian beliefs say that we must show respect for Islam, at least peaceful Islam. Right? And the thing is, you see, that respect begins by showing respect for the God of Islam because that's what, it, that's what the Muslims demand. That's where it all begins. Unfortunately, we have a sitting president who makes his Christian faith front and center, but at the same time, not long after 9-1-1, stood in a mosque as hundreds of millions of viewers watched and listened, and he told the whole world that Allah is the same as the Christian God. And that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam must show respect for each other's beliefs as the only obvious route to peace and coexistence. We must compromise. We must make allowances for one another. The applause was thunderous. The whole world acclaimed him for it, as did the bulk of Christianity and Judaism. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus preach uh, peace at any price? 
there in Moab, the deadly spiral of apostasy and idolatry began subtly and unnoticed with some Hebrew men merely forming acquaintanceships with Moabite women. Pretty soon, as says verse 2, the Moabite women did what was natural. They invited their new Hebrew friends to join them at some of their national festive occasions. An honest and sincere attempt to be social. And of course, just as it was for Israel, all of Moab's festive occasions revolved around one of or another of their gods. Many within Israel had no qualms with this. And in attending some of Moab's religious celebrations, they saw no conflict with that versus their worship of Jehovah. For them, they were but forging a peaceful relationships with the Moabites. See, we're attempting to do exactly the same thing today for the same reasons. Judaism invokes humanitarianism. Christianity invokes the love and peace commanded by Yeshua as our platform for reaching out a hand of tolerance to Islam. God's reaction to these kinds of human efforts and total misuse of his commandments is well stated in Numbers 25.3. The anger of Adonai blazed up against Israel. See, these acts were then and still are categorized in the Bible as high-handed sins, the worst of the worst. And so the punishment will be commensurate with the crime. It is clear that the Lord, and so the writer of these scriptures we're reading today, sees what is happening as a national rebellion of Israel against God. All of Israel, therefore, is held responsible for this apostasy. The Lord's response is swift and severe. He says, all the chiefs and heads over the people are to be punished first. Now we run into a little bit of a problem with what actually was intended here. Because the wording in the Hebrew is a little ambiguous. What it says is that the rosh, Hebrew for heads, of the people should be singled out for divine retribution. Now, usually this is taken to mean that the tribal princes, literally the top man over each of the twelve tribes, and possibly some clan leaders as well as who's being talked about. Further, many translations say that the Lord ordered that these tribal chiefs and clan leaders were to be hung by the neck, meaning to be executed by hanging. Well, it's doubtful that hanging, as we think of it, was what the Lord had in mind at all. Strangulation was seen as most inhumane. It wasn't even allowed as a method to kill animals for food. So probably this was not ordered for men, no matter how terrible their sin might have been. Therefore, without doubt, this this term hanging is a standard term that means to be impaled on a pole, hung up on a pole. All right, And that was very usual for that era. In fact, it was usual enough that in Deuteronomy, we find a law that was created to deal with it. In Deuteronomy 21-22, we find, it reads, 
If a man is guilty of a capital offense and is put to death and you impale him on a pole, you must not let his corpse remain on that pole overnight, must, but must bury him in the same day. But that only solves half of our problem. The hanging was not by the neck, it was being impaled on a pole. But did the Lord actually order the execution of all the tribal chiefs of Israel for this whoring? Overall, the rabbis and the sages say, yes, that's exactly what was ordered here. I mean, it makes the most plain sense out of the text and the context of the story, and the lesson from it's also clear. When national or corporate sin is involved, pay attention, you leaders out there. It's the leadership that is the most to blame. And they, shall bow, they we, shall bear the worst consequences for it. But the scripture takes this even a step further. It's not just that the leader's execution was going to be a matter of punishment for their idolatry. It's actually going to be a matter of atonement for Israel that the leaders be killed. As it's stated at the end of verse 4 when it says that these men should die in order that the Lord's wrath may turn away from Israel. See, this is a modern, I mean, this is a principle that we of the modern church have done everything we can to disavow. Okay? We've gone so far as to say that the New Testament God doesn't even punish us anymore. I mean, I, I defy you to find that principle anywhere in the Word, but, but that's what's taught. Okay? What he doesn't do with the faithful believer is to condemn us, meaning eternal damnation. But to think that somehow we're immune from the Lord's discipline, that can be very painful, is just dangerously outside of what the scripture tells us. You know, we have encountered this principle of the high-handed sin back in Leviticus. And the only atonement for a high-handed sin is the blood of the person who committed it. In other words, there is a kind of sin, a level of sin, for which God will not accept the sacrificial blood of an animal as a substitute for the death of the sinner that he had coming. When we hear that phrase that's spoken so often in the Bible, he has his blood on his own head. That's what it's getting at. No substitution for him is allowed because of what he did. So Moses says to certain other leaders to go and kill those who gave themselves over to Baal Peor, that is, the god of Moab. Well, let's stop here for a second. This is another of these spots in the Bible where the sages have some trouble. Because what Moses ordered these certain leaders to do wasn't what the Lord had just told Moses he ought to do. In essence, Jehovah made all the tribal principles personally responsible for allowing their people to consort with Chemosh, the Baal of Moab, even if those princes had not themselves been directly involved. Moses, however, turned around and ordered that only people who had actually participated in these rituals should be punished. Hmm. You know, this really isn't the first time Moses has kind of veered away from one of the Lord's direct commands to him. 
Well, why would Moses have done this? Why, why would he have been so reluctant to execute those leaders? Well, in order not to go into great detail, I only ask you to think about the scenes that we regularly see on, on our TVs that come from Iraq. Tribal members and Muslim sect members will do anything to protect their leaders. The leaders will sacrifice any amount of their people to maintain their own position and power. See, this duality is the essence of the tribal system. It's unthinkable that a Hebrew tribal prince, the head of an entire tribe, would have willingly submitted turned himself in so that he could be executed. It's also unthinkable that the people of that tribe would have stood idly by and allowed it to happen. So from a human government sense, Moses took the easier path. One which felt better to him personally. Get the tribal princesses who God, uh, princes who God told him to execute to instead go and execute some of the lesser leaders under them as punishment for the nation's apostasy. Anybody who's ever spent much time in corporate management understands that principle very well. What hasn't been said yet, though, is that a plague was now raging among the Israelites as God was pouring out his wrath on the nation of Israel for their rebellion. So the idea is that the deaths of these Israelite leaders would satisfy God's justice and the plague would end before too many more Israelites died. Well, in the midst of all this, while people were dying by the thousands and the rest were out partying with the pagans, a certain Hebrew man brought a Midianite woman into the camp and introduced her to his kinsmen. What that tells us is, this had become very normal. Completely normal. We discussed last week, or the week before, that Moab and Midian had some type of alliance working at this time. That in fact, some Midianites had even been part, if you'll think back to our lesson, of the official entourage sent from King Balak of Moab up to Mesopotamia to try and fetch that famous sorcerer, Bilam. So at this moment in history, the Lord puts the Moabites and the Midianites in essentially the same boat. They're both enemies of God. That this Israelite man would bring a foreigner into camp at this moment and brazenly walk her right in front of Moses, who was standing at the entrance to the wilderness tabernacle, is meant to demonstrate the perverted state of mind to which Israel had once again succumbed. Naturally, since the tent of meeting was where the priests operated, Phineas, who was the priest in charge of the tabernacle guards, saw this Hebrew man and this Midianite woman wander by, and he became incensed at their utter disregard for the Lord's holiness. He picked up a spear, undoubtedly probably right out of the hand of one of the hundreds of the Levite guards stationed all around the tabernacle area, followed that licentious couple into the Hebrew man's tent that was located so near to the sacred tent. And while this couple is in the act, 
Phineas runs them both through with that spear. I don't think I need to draw a picture of just how this couple could have been killed at one time with one spear. And just so we understand, the scripture says he stabbed them through the belly. See, this is a Hebrew euphemism, the belly, for the reproductive organs. The idea being that they were in the act of sinning with those organs, so they're going to die with those organs being pierced. Interestingly, it was Phineas's act of killing that couple that stopped the plague. But not before 24,000 people had died from it already. Now, I'm, not, I'm sure that some of you have a bit of trouble with this priest taking the law into his own hands and killing that couple. Well, so did the ancient rabbis. They attempted all sorts of gyrations in their commentaries in order that Phineas not look very good in all this. Be that as it may, in verse 10, Phineas is honored by God for taking the lives of these two rebels, a Hebrew and a foreigner. The gist of the situation is that Phineas had what we Christians kind of like to call a righteous burst of anger. It wasn't that Phineas was so horribly personally offended so much as it was that he stepped forward when nobody else would to defend the honor of the Lord. The Lord declares that what Phineas did was not only not murder, that in fact it was the needed act of expiation that prevented Jehovah from wiping out Israel for their high-handed sinning. Even more, the Lord says, I grant Phineas my shalom. He blessed Phineas for what he did. Jehovah then went on to declare that as a reward for his decisive action, Phineas would be the clan, would represent that clan of the Levite tribe who would be the priests from here on out. Now this didn't really change all that much, it just clarified something. See, Phineas was Eleazar's son, and Eleazar was Aaron's son. Aaron was dead, Eleazar was at this time the high priest, so one of Eleazar's sons naturally would have to be the next high priest. The Lord just decided who that would be. Alright, Phineas. Well, we kind of see the whole tone of chapter 25 shift after Phineas executes that couple. The plague ends, the Lord's justice is met, and it seems as if the shocking acts finally, act finally brings Israel to its senses. The generation that would enter the promised land had just received a pretty sobering lesson on God's kindness and his severity. His severity to destroy those who casually and callously rebel against him and his kindness in providing a means of atonement and mercy for those who had not yet died from his wrath a lesson that their parents had received on more than one occasion. But their parents were also prevented from entering the promised land. This chapter ends by the Lord declaring war on the Midianites, a people who seduced the rather easily led 
Hebrews into worshipping other gods and into unlawful sexual activity. Now this coming war against Midian and naturally their ally Moab meant that a call to arms of Israel's army would be needed and was always, as was always done prior to beginning a war or conquest, a census would need to be taken. A census would both alert the men to arm themselves and give the leader a means to count his troops. That's what Numbers 26 is going to concern itself with. So let's read Numbers chapter 26. Adonai said to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron the Cohen, take a census of the entire assembly of the people of Israel, 20 years old and over, by their ancestral clans, all who are subject to military service in Israel. Moshe and Eleazar, the Cohen, spoke with them on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, explaining, those 20 years old and over who came out of the land of Egypt, Zadonai ordered Moses and the people of Israel. Well, the census results begin with Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. The descendants of Reuben were of Hanoch, the family of Hanochi, of Palu, the family of Palui, of Hetzron, the family of Hetzroni, and of Carmi, the family of Carmi. These were the families of the Reubenites. Of them were counted 43,730. The sons of Palu, Eliav. The sons of Eliav, Nemuel, Datan, and Abiram. These are the same Datan and Avaram, men of reputation in the community, who rebelled against Moses and Aaron and Korah's group when they rebelled against Adonai. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that group died. And the fire consumed 250 men and they became a warning sign. However, the sons of Korah did not die. The descendants of Shimon by their families were of Nemuel, the family of Nemueli, of Yamin, the family of Yamini, of Yachin, the family of Yachini, of Zerah, the family of Zerahi, and of Shaul, the family of Shauli. These were the families of the Shimoni, 22,200 of them. The descendants of Gad by their families were of Tzfon, the family of the Safoni, of Hagi, the family of the Hagi, of Shuni, the family of the Shuni, of Ozni, the family of the Ozni, of Eri, the family of Eri, and of Erod, the family of the Erodi, and of Areli, the family of Areli. These were the families of the sons of Gad according to those counted of them 40,500. The sons of Judah. First, Er and Onan, but Er and Onan died in the land of, the, of uh, Canaan. The sons of Judah, who had descendants, were of Shelah, the family of the Shelani, of Peretz, the family of the Partsi, and of Zirah, the family of the Zarhi. The sons of Peretz were of Hetzron, the family of the Hetzroni, and of uh, Hamul, the family of the Hamuli. These were the families of Judah, According to those counted of them, 76,500. The descendants of Issachar by their families were of Tola, the family of the Tola'i, of Puva, the family of the Puni, of Yashuv, the family of the Yashuvi, and of Shimron, the family of the Shimroni. These were the families of Issachar, according to those counted of them, 64,300. 
The descendants of Zebulun by their families were of Sered, the family of the Sardi, of Elon, the family of the Eloni, of Yachleel, the family of the Yachleeli. These were the families of the Zebuloni according to those counted 60,500. The sons of Joseph by their families were Manasseh and Ephraim. The descendants of Manasseh were of Mahir, the family of the Mahiri. Mahir was the father of Gilead. Of Gilead, the family of the Gileadi. These are the descendants of Gilead. Of Aizer, the family of Aizri. Of Helech, the family of the Helechi. Of Asriel, the family of the Asrieli. Of Shechem, the family of Shechmi. Of Shmidah, the family of the Shmidai. And of Hefer, the family of the Hefri. Zolofchad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zolofchad were Machla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tzirza. These were the families of Manasseh. Of them were counted 52,700. Now these are the descendants of Ephraim by their families. Of uh, Shutelah, the family of the Shutelahi. Of Becher, the family of Bachri. Of Tachan, the family of the Tachani. These are the descendants of Shutelah, of Aaron, the family of Aarani. And these were the families of the descendants of Ephraim, according to those of them who were counted, 32,500. These were the descendants of Joseph by their families. Now the descendants of Benjamin by their families were of Bela, the family of the Bela'i, the, of uh, Ashbel, the family of the Eshbali, of Ahiram, the, fa- the family of the Ahirami, of Shufam, the family of the Shufami, and of Hufam, the family of the Hufami. The sons of Bela were Ard and Naaman, the family of Ardi, and of Naaman, the family of the Naami. These were the descendants of Benjamin. By their families were counted 45,600. Now, to the descendants of Dan, by their families, were of Shuham, the family of the Shuhami. These are the families of Dan, by their families. And all the families of the Shuhami, according to those of them that were counted, were 64,400. The descendants of Asher, by their families, of Yimnah, the family of the, uh, family of the Yimnah, of Yishvi, the family of the Yishvi, and of Biriah, the family of the Biri'i. Of the descendants of, of Beriah, of Hever, the family of the Havri, of Malkiel, the family of the Malkieli. The name of Asher's daughter was Serah. And these were the families of the descendants of Asher, according to those of them that were counted 53,400. The descendants of Naphtali by their families. Of Yachzeel, the families of the Yachzeeli, of Guni, the family of the Guni, of Yetzer, the family of the Yitzri, and of Shalim, the family of the Shilimi. These are the families of Naphtali, according to their families. Those of uh, them that were counted were 45,400. Those who were counted of the people of Israel numbered 601,730. And Adonai said to Moses, The land is to be parceled out among these as a possession to be inherited according to the number of names. To those families with more persons, you're to give a greater inheritance. And to those with fewer, you're to give a smaller inheritance. Each family's inheritance is to be given according to the number counted in it. However, the land is to be awarded by lot. 
they will inherit according to the names of the tribes of their ancestors. But the inheritance is to be parceled out by lot between the families with more and those with fewer. Now, those counted among the Levites by their families were of Gershon, the family of the Gershoni, of Kahat, the family of the Kahati, and of Merari, the family of the Merari. These are the families of Levi. The family of the Libni, the family of the Hebroni, the family of the Machli, the family of the Mushi, and the family of the Korhi. Kahat was the father of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Yehokabed, the daughter of Levi who was born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram, Aaron, Moses, and their sister Miriam. To Aaron were born Nadav, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadav and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before Adonai. Those males one month old or more counted of the Levi were 23,000. These were not included in the census of the people of Israel because no land for inheritance was given to them among the people of Israel. These are the ones counted by Moses and Eleazar the Kohen who took a census of the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. But there wasn't a man among them who had also been, been included in the census of Moses and Aaron the Cohen when they enumerated the people of Israel back in the Sinai desert. Because Adonai had said of them, they will surely die in the desert. So there was not left even one of them except Kalev the son of Yafuni and Yahshua the son of Nun. Well, we now enter a new phase in the formation of Israel as a nation. It's about the conquest of the land of Canaan. Well, the final 11 chapters of the book of Numbers deals with this this cycle of battles and then settling and then moving on and doing this over and over again in order to possess, possess the promised land. See, that first sense is taken back and the first couple of chapters of Numbers was of the first generation of the Exodus, a generation that essentially no longer exists. The census we just read about in Numbers chapter 26 is of the second generation, the newest generation of Israel. And this census is for two primary purposes. To determine how many soldiers each tribe would muster, and then to determine the amount of territory each tribe would receive when Canaan got divided up among the tribes of Israel. Now, as with the first census, and generally all biblical censuses, only males were counted. And then, only men of an age that could carry arms and fight. As a contrast, though, we're going to see that while that first generation of the Exodus was constantly whining and rebelling and longing for the good old days back in Egypt, the new generation was a bit more faithful, more passionate about their mission and what lay ahead of them, more willing to put their lives on the line to achieve what had been promised to Abraham over 600 years earlier. A land of his own and the countless people, his descendants, to fill it up.
Well, Israel was camping at this time, we're told, just to the east of Jericho, on the eastern banks of the Jordan River. You know, no doubt, everybody within 500 miles in every direction knew exactly where this gigantic population of 3 million Hebrews were. There were just too many of them, and there were exploits too well known for it to be otherwise. Since Aaron is dead and buried back on Mount Hor, his son, the new high priest, Eleazar, is speaking, is spoken to directly by God, who tells him how he's to conduct this new sentence, the new uh, census. And the Lord says, here's what you're to do. Take account of the whole community, the families who came up out of Egypt, actually their descendants, but as we're soon going to find out, the whole community of Israel no longer includes the tribe of Levi. So indeed, they will not be part of the census, but they will be part of a, they will have their own separate census conducted for them. Now we're not going to examine every aspect of the census. I'm just going to point out some outstanding features. First of all, in verses 8 through 11, we see that there are descendants of Reuben and Korah that remain. And the reason that this is important is due to that terrible wrath of the Lord that, that, that came against the tribe of Reuben and the clan of Korah particularly, when that earth opened up and swallowed them up, and it appeared at least at the moment that included their entire family. But here we see that indeed there were survivors, because their clan names are listed in uh, this chapter. In fact, the clan of Korah went on to be quite an important clan of Levites as they became the singers at the temple. And at the end of the list of tribes, we get this final tally. 601,730 men aged 20 and up who were able to be part of the military. That is a big army. Now look at this chart of tribes before you we find that some tribes increased while others decreased. Further, we see that there were about 1,800 fewer men now than there were at that first census taken about 40 years earlier. This doesn't necessarily indicate that Israel was overall a smaller population. It could be and likely was that this was a much younger population with so many children being born and replacing the older ones who had originally come out of Egypt. And when you factor in that we're talking about a quarter of 1% difference between that first sentence census and this one, and we can say for all practical purposes, despite all the battles they had been in, the plagues, the judgment of God against the Israelites, the population remained level with only a really a shift among the tribes as to which ones grew and which ones shrank. And we can see by the chart that Manasseh had the largest population increase, amounting to more than 60% during those 40 years in the wilderness. On the other end of the scale was Shimon, Simeon, uh, who was uh, utterly decimated Right. They had lost 37,100 
population. And no doubt the Lord's hand guided these increases and decreases. But just as certain, this was not entirely supernatural per se. Likely Simeon experienced not only an inordinate amount of deaths versus births, but also suffered many defections of their tribal members into the other more robust Israelite tribes, which is common among tribal societies. Conversely, Manasseh had a slightly better birth rate, lower death rate, as compared to the other 11 tribes, but as they started out in the Exodus as the largest tribe, and as sons of Joseph, they wielded a lot of power. So it was natural that some of the members of lesser tribes, like Shimon, would find it pretty attractive to be part of a more dominant tribe like Manasseh. Well, in verse 52, one of the two primary reasons for the taking of this census in Numbers 26 is put into use. The division of the land. And there are two seemingly at odds criteria that are to be used by Moses to divvy up Canaan. The size of the territory, it's were said, it were told, is to be proportional to the size of the tribe. Makes sense. And, second, the land shall be apportioned by lot. Well, the obvious question is, how can it be both ways at the same time? Was the choosing of the lots a simple game of chance? Or as the Israelites saw it, as the Lord's providence that was going to miraculously coincide with the population of each tribe. No. Here's how the sages of old say it worked. I think they're right. The general location of each tribe, where it was going to be situated in Canaan, would be assigned by lot. But actual population would then determine the size of that territory. There were coastal areas that permitted shipping and fishing, just as there were hilly areas that were suitable for grazing. There were places along well-established trade routes that crisscrossed the land uh, for merchants. and, and uh, Then there were places, unfortunately, where tribes would be located, like poor old Dan, right, right next to very difficult enemies, the Philistines. So the lot would determine the general region, and then Moses would determine the borders of each tribe in that region using the rule that the bigger the tribe, the more expansive its borders. Well, the final section of Numbers 26 deals with the entirely separate census of the Levites, and its clans are listed. And they're listed as distinct. Because, first, the Lord sees them as no longer part of Israel. Second, because they're not part of Israel and not entitled to land, the Lord himself was their portion. The Levites, you see, were to be funded and supported by the twelve tribes. If you counted Levi as a tribe of Israel, at this time there were thirteen of them. And so their needs, beyond what they would be provided with, were seen as small. Rather, the Levites were given 48 cities scattered throughout the various territories. 
of the 12 tribes. Well, in verse 62, we see that the number of Levite males was 23,000. That number is a little bit deceiving, though, because it counted all males beginning at the age of one month, 30 days, all right, and up. The census of the 12 tribes had a lower limit of what? 20 years. All right. And an upper limit as well of around 50-ish men who could still fight. The, the Levites had no limit. All right. 30 and alive. All right. That was the limit. Rather, 30 days and alive. All right. So Levi, Levi, was easily the smallest of the tribes right about now. Now, I think it's fascinating that by this point in history, the second and third born sons of Jacob, the ones who had led that terrible and ungodly raid of revenge upon the helpless male citizens of Shechem about 500 years earlier, were now the least of them all. Their tribes were the smallest. Back in Genesis 49, we studied the prophetic blessings of Jacob, called Israel, upon each of his sons. Simeon, Shimon, and Levi were the only sons grouped together and given one common blessing by Jacob. And frankly, it was nearer a curse than it was a blessing. Let me recall it for you. Genesis 49.5 Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger. Because it's fierce. And their wrath. Because it was cruel. I will disperse them. In Jacob. I will scatter them. In Israel. That almost five century old now. Blessing was becoming realized. At about the same moment. The six century old promise. Given to Abraham. Of a land of their own. Was coming about. This chapter ends with the reminder that all that remained of the males who were under the age of 20 when they left Egypt were Joshua and Caleb. This means 600,000 males had died during those 40 years out in the wilderness. They would have had a funeral every day. Man, that's a bunch of funerals. Joshua and Caleb were the two out of the twelve spies, you recall, who did their best to convince the leaders of Israel to go in advance into Canaan 38 years earlier, but they wouldn't do it. We'll start chapter 27 next week.